Thank you, Pastor Jerry, for all of your hard work and taking care of the church. Uh, amen. Let's go. <clears throat> Did you see how classy he was when you talked about the person who brokered the first deal, that it wasn't that good? Uh, no, no. <laughs> but... Uh, I was the, you know, the, the senior pastor, the executive pastor during that time, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, thank God, amen. <laughs> well, I want to welcome our guests today who are with us in God's house and those who are online want to welcome you and I want to um, just share a little bit with you about who we are. Um, we are here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we do that by being a Bible-based, multi-dimensional fellowship of believers. We want to see everybody grow in their love relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ. As we make disciples, we realize we can't make a disciple. Um, it's a choice as we create an environment of love as well as of truth that, and accountability that allows all of us to grow to be more like Jesus every day. And our vision as a church is taken from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is what we call God's diverse kingdom. We are one, but we are not the same. We celebrate our differences, we don't deny our differences by way of race, gender, and class, all those things found in this passage here. So our vision as a church is to experience, explain, and expand God's diverse kingdom in the city and throughout the world. And what I'm going to be doing uh, this month, and probably even um, a little bit after this month, which we've called um, Black History Month, is I'm going to be explaining certain things about God's diverse kingdom. And so it's going to be uh, wonderful for all of us. Some of us are going to be reminded of things that we were taught, maybe even you learned here at this church. Some of us are going to learn things we've never heard before. And I just would encourage you that as you hear things you may not have never heard before, that doesn't mean it's not true. Um, I encourage you every week to be like the Berean Christians. Go and search the scriptures to see if these things are true, okay? Because it's the scripture that gives us our worldview. And before we get started, uh, do all of our children have their supplies from Miss Felicia? Everybody have what they need this morning? We're cool? We're good this morning? Okay, and kids, I don't mind some amens, some crying, shouting. It doesn't bother me at all, all right? Parents are like, why didn't you say that? But anyway, we are, we are cool here. As, as I've said before, when the Bible says that the church, it has many designations in Scripture, and one of them is the household of faith. And so I, I see God's house many times as a big living room that we all get to come. This is not a performance, nor is it a production. It is a family of people who have come to worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, many of us grew up in churches that didn't have children's ministries, uh, student ministries. You had to sit the whole service on that wooden bench you know what I'm saying? And, and, and if you move back then, you'd get popped. Uh, I, I just saw a pop. I just saw a pop somewhere in this direction. But 
I just saw a pop. <laughs> but um, as Elder Paul said, my dear friend, we will, by the grace of God, get back to what we normally do and the programs we offer as a church, uh, but we always want to be as safe as we can be. We have erred on the side of safety from the first time we began to hear about this pandemic, and I thank God um, that he has kept this church relatively safe. Not many pastors can say what I'm about to say right now, and that is during this pandemic of two years, we have not had to bury any of the members of this church who succumbed to COVID-19. So that's to give God glory. And that's not to put down anyone else and anyone else's experience, but as far as our experience, I know pastors who've had to bury multiple people in their congregations. And so thank you, Jesus. Um, you know, when the Israelites were in Egypt, they were in the land of Goshen, and when those plagues went out, it was as if God put a force field over the land of Goshen. And that's what I pray for this church, that he'll put a force field, if you will. Uh, the Bible calls it a hedge of protection. Uh, the old folks called it Jesus be a fence all around me. And so we pray that for our congregation as we're asking God to bless you with peace, to bless your relationships, to bless your jobs, everything. We also ask that God would cover and heal people in our congregation. So we thank God. You know, one of our joys as elders is that we get to watch for souls. And watching for souls involves intercession, praying, standing in the gap. And when we get your prayer requests during the week, oh man, it is our joy to be able to pray for you and pray with you. Amen. With that being said, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 10. Now, if you have to go to the table of contents to find Genesis 10, I know We've got some work to do here at Strong Tower in terms of making disciples. Amen. And I want to thank uh, the team for putting together that beautiful video for Black History Month. Wow. Um, look forward to next week. Um, you know, I, I just thought Pastor Jerry and the team were going to roll out the ones they did last year. But man, they've got new ones this year. And Wow. Praise God. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, not just biblical truth, but historical truth. Praise God. And we're in a series right now that we're doing on Sunday mornings for the sermon time and on Wednesday nights online for Bible study called Unwrapping Black Presence in the Bible. Black Presence. I'm doing a little play on words here. Unwrapping Black Presence. There's so many black presents in Scripture. And the black presence our black presence to the world. So each week I will do my best to unwrap several black presents for us from the Bible. Um, I like opening up presents. I'm sure you like opening up presents. And so we're going to open up some presents this month, and we're going to have a good time beholding the glory of God in people. Um, it has been said that God takes his greatest gifts and wraps them in human flesh. So I'm looking at some wonderful gifts and presents from God, um, because really the only thing we can take to heaven with us is other people. We can't take any of this other stuff, but people made in the image of God go to heaven, which is why it's paramount for us to preach the gospel that God loves his people, 
And he made a way for us to be right with him through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place, who lived the life that we could not live, but he died the death that we all ought to die. And that's the death of someone who is guilty. Uh, but the Bible says that the one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The just for the unjust. That's the good news. And not only did he die, but he rose again from the grave. And if you're looking for life, life is found in Jesus Christ. So if you've never given your heart to God, if you've never put your faith in God's son, today is the day of salvation to trust Jesus Christ for yourself as the only savior of the world. Good works cannot make us right with God because our good works are like filthy rags. Only the work of Jesus that was finished and accomplished on Calvary's cross and the subsequent resurrection is what makes us right with God. Justified by grace through faith. Can I get an amen from the believers in the house? Hallelujah. Amen. So Black History Month, Black History Month, it does not begin with slavery. American slavery. Black History Month does not even begin with Black History Week, which was founded in 1926 by Carter G. Woodson. Black history, brothers and sisters, it begins with God. Black history begins with God's word, the Bible. Black history begins with Africa. Africa is God's gift to the world. And when we see the glories of Africa in the Bible, it will impact how we see the glories of Africa, Africans, and African Americans in the world in which we live. When we see the glories of Africa in the Bible, it will impact how we see the glories of Africa, Africans, and African Americans in the world in which we live because the Bible impacts our viewpoint. Um, it is truth that transforms our mind and shows up in how we live and interact and engage with other people. And so today I'm going to preach a sermon that I've never preached before and it's called The Gift of Ham's Four Black Sons. So I told you we're unwrapping black presents. So we're going to look at today the gift of Ham's four black sons. So in other words, we're going to see the gift of Africa in the Bible and the gift of Africans in the Bible. Now, again, I know some of this is new for us because we've been so colonized with Christianity that we tend to think that everybody in the Bible, especially those who are productive, are European or uh, or Caucasian. Um, but I want us again to, to follow what Jesus said. You shall know the truth. And the truth is going to do what for you? Set you free. So let's pray together. Father, it's my prayer that you'll surprise me while I teach this morning. That you'll show me something in the text that I didn't see this past week. That the Holy Spirit will give me some thoughts and things to say that I haven't thought about saying. 
and that all these things will be in concert with your spirit and, of course, your scripture. And, Lord, as I'm asking you to surprise me this morning, would you surprise your people this morning? Would you cause them to delight in your handiwork? Would you break down the partitions and the high things that are in our minds because of conditioning from this culture? And much of the conditioning that has happened within the realm of Christianity, that we may see the truth, know the truth, love the truth, and live the truth. Jesus set us free this morning. Lord, I pray for our world. The world we live in is still dreadfully and drastically divided by race. It's not just in the political house, but Lord, it's in the church house. It's everywhere. But God, I thank you for how you operate through a small group of people who go out and mushroom impact into the world. You use 12 to turn the world upside down. You are not taken aback by smaller numbers of people who have your truth in their bosom. So, Father, we consider to be part of that number that's on the road to heaven, that's straight, narrow, and only few are on that road. And at the same time, God, as we are few, we're going to take the bushel off of the lamp so that our lights may shine in this dark world. I thank you again for the kingdom of God, how you have brought different kinds of people together, not only those who are in Abraham, but those who are outside of Abraham to trust in the one who is a descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to place us in his body. So Lord, do that thing that you do and open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds today. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I praise you in advance for what you're going to do. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. I've had the privilege of visiting the continent of Africa on five different occasions. So over the years, man, I have been to Africa. So many wonderful countries the Lord has allowed me to go to not always going over to give something as a preacher, but above all, going over to receive something as a distant son of the great continent. And I received more than I could ever give on each visit. I remember the first time that I went, it was in 1998, I had been invited to come by the president at the time of Benin, which is a country in West Africa, which was one of the nations that sent slaves, or rather Africans, who became enslaved to the Americas. So right there along the west coast of Africa, there was Benin. And President Matthew Karakou invited me and a, a group of others from this country, pastors and businessmen and women, uh, to come because he wanted to apologize for the role that Africans played in the transatlantic slave trade because so much attention is put on those who came and bought or even stole Africans away from the country and not enough attention was put on Africans who sold Africans to Europeans as they departed 
from the continent. So he wanted to come and apologize for the role that his people played. And it was a life-changing trip, to say the least. And I remember when the plane landed in West Africa. And uh, I looked out the window. And the land was already so vast and big at the airport. And I stepped off the plane and I put my foot on African soil. It was so emotional. And I had this thought, and the thought was, you come from somewhere over here. This is where you come. This land is where your ancestors come from. And it was a surreal moment for me, very emotional. But as I am learning the Bible, not only is Africa the place where I come from as an African-American man, but Africa is the place where everyone comes from if we truly believe what the Bible teaches. Especially to my European brothers and sisters, my Caucasian brothers and sisters, you did not come from Europe. If you believe the Bible, you came from the land of Africa, just like me. That's not what we're always taught, but that's what we teach in this church because we teach the Bible. So Africa is everyone's motherland. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, we covered this in Bible study on Wednesday night. It says, and he, speaking of God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So, so from one, God has made every nation on the face of the earth. I believe in creation. I believe what the Bible says. So in the primary sense, <clears throat> excuse me, this one blood, or some versions will say from one man, the primary sense is Adam. We can all agree with that, that we all come from Adam. And so in the Bible study, we learned that Adam was anything but a European. Adam was anything but a Caucasian. Adam was an African. Ah, pastor, what are you talking about? Well, again, if we just look at the clues that God gives us in Scripture, we look at, number one, the soil that God made Adam from. The Bible says that God made man from the dust of the ground. The word ground is a Hebrew word that means reddish or reddish brown, speaking of the color of the dirt or the clay. So Adam was made from the Adama, the ground. And then you look at the fact that Adam sounds a lot like Adama, reddish brown clay. Adam means man, but it also means taken from reddish brown dirt or earth. So much so that people in the Bible whose names are Edom, which speaks of red or red complexion, red hair. The Edomites literally means red. So Adam was taken from soil. His name means red, red soil, red name. And then the Bible says that where God placed him in this garden, 
of Eden. It was in a, in a land called Cush. Cush, as we're going to see in a minute, has been transliterated into the English from the Hebrew language to mean Ethiopia. So no one knows where the Garden of Eden is, but there are clues to let you know where it is. And the Bible talks about this land called Cush. Then it talks about the resources in that land as far as it being good gold. The continent of Africa has always been known for its rich resources in the earth the bedulum, the onyx, and of course, the good gold. So Moses, as he's writing Genesis, gives us clues that he's taken from reddish-brown soil. His name means from reddish-brown earth. It also means man. He's in this land called Cush, which is located in Africa. And then he's got this job to name all the animals. What continent is known most for its wildlife? It is Africa. And so we have to reprogram our minds to say that Adam, taken from the earth in this land of Africa with all of its rich resources, was anything but a Caucasian that we see Michelangelo painting on the ceilings of the Sistine Chapel. That he was a man of color, if black may be a little too strong for some. But if you live in Africa, you're more than a person of color. You are a black person. And then when we look at his genetics, because from one man, every nation has been made. And we're going to see in a moment that these nations are diverse in their appearance as far as their skin tone. We could go on and on and talk about hair, texture, um, eye size, eye color, all those kinds of things. But the Bible lays out at least what we'll see today as it pertains to just the appearance of skin. You cannot get skin variations of different shades of skin from a Caucasian. It's genetically impossible. But you can get variations of skin tone and shade from someone who is of color. That's genetically possible. Somebody said Cliff Huxtable on the Cosby show, how he had them kids that one was dark like Theo and the girls over here. But anyway, anyway, there are scientific things you can look at. I just wanted to drop some uh, Cosby show on you. So in the primary sense, the one blood or the one man is Adam that we all come from. And where did Adam originate? In Africa. But then secondly, as we'll focus today, the secondary sense of Acts 17.26 from one man, one blood, is Noah. Noah. We all trace ourselves back to Noah. Genesis chapter 9. I'm in the Bible. I'm in the Bible. Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is very similar to what he said to Adam and Eve, right? He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. Then there was the flood that happens in Genesis chapter 6. Now, Noah is on the boat with his three sons, their wives, and even his grandson, Canaan. They come off the boat. It rests somewhere in Mount Ararat in the realm of Turkey. They come off the boat. And God blesses Noah and his sons. So that means, as we're going to see, 
that Shem was blessed. Japheth was blessed. And Ham was blessed. All three sons were blessed and they were told by God, be fruitful and multiply and now fill or even refill the earth. So we trace the nations back to Adam in the primary sense and then Noah and his three sons in the secondary sense. Look at verse 18 of chapter 9. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Amen. So there's a common ancestry that we all have. Um, We're all related because we're made in the image of God. We're brothers and sisters because we have uh, the life principle uh, together. We share that as human beings. Amen. And so when you look at Genesis chapter 9, Noah's sons are listed. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, in the world at that time, and it would uh, carry on into Hebrew culture and many other cultures, that you would name your children based on certain uh, physical um, things in their appearance, unique things in their appearance, or you would name them based on certain things going on in the times and seasons in the world. But, but naming your child was significant, and it was very um, symbolic and picturesque of what was happening or what they looked like. So Noah and his wife had three sons who ranged in color. So when you look at the Hebrew language, the word shim literally means dusky or olive. So they had a son who had a dusky complexion. From Shem come the Semitic and Arabic peoples. And then they had another son named Japheth. And Japheth means bright or fair. So they looked at him and his complexion was very bright, light, or fair. So they named him that. And from him comes the Caucasoid people, um, the European people. And then there's Ham. And Ham's name in the Hebrew means black or dark, even burnt. So he is darker than his brothers. He has a different complexion. They all have different complexions. So the question then comes, how can Noah and Mrs. Noah have three kids who range in complexion? Uh, Was mama stepping out? What, what, What was going on here? Uh, uh, No, again, because of genetics. And a God who is knitting each one of these children together in the womb of Mrs. Noah because he wants to create this diverse world, he knits in them these differences in their melanin. And they come forth differently. And from these three sons, the world will be populated. So when you go to Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, It says, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. So this is the genealogy. Genesis chapter 10 is known as the table of nations. When we read uh, the three sons and those who will come from them, their posterity, 
We come to the end of chapter 10, verse 32, and it says, These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on earth after the flood. Seventy nations are mentioned here. Seventy in chapter 10. So this is where we trace our origins, our genesis from. Primary sense, we come from Adam. Secondary sense, we come from Noah and one of his, his three sons. So within Ham, not only do we have Africans, but we have Mongoloids. And uh, again, people who have um, more melanin in their skin as opposed to being olive or dusky or being bright or fair. So this is where we are. And look at chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. So... Moses starts off by writing about Japheth. Then he's going to write about Ham, and then he'll close the chapter by writing about Shem. So we have Ham, who's always in the middle. He, he's probably the middle child. Shem is probably the oldest. And Moses saves Shem for last because he's a Semitic person himself. And this is where, again, Jesus comes from, the, the deliverer of the world. So, so the, the Jews or the Hebrews are saved for last on the table of nations. But, but Ham is in the middle. And so this is where we get the gift of Ham's four sons. Who are those sons again? Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. These four sons are gifts to the world. These four black sons are God's gift to the world. So let's look at each gift. The first gift is the gift of Cush from Genesis chapter 10. The sons of Ham were Cush. And Cush, his name, not only means black, but it has also been translated into English text as the word Ethiopia. Ethiopia. So when you read through the Bible and you see, uh, can an Ethiopian change his skin? That's a Cushite. So there are people from Cush or Cushai, Cushites, Ethiopians in the Bible. So let's just stop and pause right there. The big Bible that sat in my living room in my mom and dad's house that had pictures in it that you'd flip through, everybody in that Bible was white. And I just couldn't understand it. But when you start reading the Bible without the pictures, and in some cases without the commentary notes, and let it speak for itself, you have Cush, which is Ethiopia. So Africa and Africans are in the Bible, and they're spoken of in a positive light. Uh, I'll say some things for Wednesday night's Bible study. I won't, I won't chase. So um, we see Cush here. And then in verse 7, look at verse 7. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah. Now, if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 2, as Moses is explaining Eden, this place that no one can find, and the flaming sword was put there to keep Adam and Eve from going back in and all of that, this paradise on earth that they were expelled from, as he's trying to explain this area, Eden, and he talks about the land of Cush and the gold that's there, he mentions Havilah. 
Havilah, again, is a descendant of Cush, the Ethiopian. It's another way of saying the land was populated by black people or would be populated by black people. So where's Eden? Somewhere in Africa. We go on and we look at these names in verse 7, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. If your pastor can't pronounce them, don't you feel bad. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. So in weeks to come, we're going to talk about the queen of Sheba who came to visit Solomon. We'll talk about Bath Sheba. And so these root words help us to understand the culture, the nationality, even the ethnicity of the people that we're reading about. Then verse 8, it says, Cush, this one black son of Ham, of Noah, of Ham, who's the son of Noah, Cush begot Nimrod. Okay, okay, so now we're going to focus in on a particular person, Nimrod. Nimrod, his name means valiant or strong. And a lot of the places I get my definitions from are books written by white scholars. So in case anyone thinks I have a bent or something like that, I'm trying to you know, read something into the Bible. Um, no, no, no. I'm going to many of the resources that um, we all use, that sons of Japheth wrote. But I also read things that sons of Ham and daughters of Ham wrote as well. And so, so his name means valiant or strong. Strong Tower, watch this now. He is the only person in this table of nations that is given any kind of biographical content in this chapter. He's the only person that they expound on his resume. It's more than a name. They go into, Moses goes into writing some of this man's exploits. So I thank God for this highlight of an African in the Bible. Because that continues to give me permission to explain God's diverse kingdom about Africans in the Bible. So Nimrod, he, he's given all this biographical content. And it says in verse 8, Cush begot Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. You see that? Now, this tells me something about Nimrod. Number one, he's powerful. He was a powerful man. The word mighty is used three times in these verses to explain him. He's a mighty one of the earth. He's a mighty hunter. He's a mighty hunter. In other words, this man was bad in a good way. But I was taught he was bad in a bad way. When I was in Bible school and seminary, Ham was never portrayed in, a, I mean, a Nimrod, was never portrayed in a positive light. But if I let the Bible just talk to me, it can tear down, again, many of the lies that were presented to me as one of his descendants ethnically. So the first thing I see is that he was powerful, mighty. It means to possess great power and strength. It's the same word in the Hebrew language that's used to describe David's mighty men. This man was mighty. And he is the first person in earth and in the Bible to be classified as mighty. 
So this is the first first of a black person. Because black people, we're the first person to get hired. We're the first person to do this. We're the first person to do that. Yeah, let's clap for the first person. The black person did this. We the first. He's the first person to be called mighty. And he may have been one of the founders of the mighty OJs. But anyway, he was powerful. <laughs> but the Bible says he was also a... Because when the Bible repeats something, don't just read past that. So when it says he's mighty three times, homeboy was mighty. But he was also a protector because in verse 9 it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Mighty hunter is mentioned twice in order to emphasize what he did. He was a mighty hunter. And as a hunter, no doubt, he would use his skills and prowess amongst wildlife to capture them in order to and what's implied here is to protect people from roaming, ravaging beasts. So he was a mighty hunter. Yeah, I'm sure what he hunted, they cooked and ate. But we also have to think of the fact that during that time, and, and, and there are other passages in Scripture that talks about beasts in the land and how beasts devour humans. And so as a mighty hunter, and I'll, I'll prove that in a minute, that, that he was one who protected people not one who hunted people. He hunted animals. Thirdly, he was pious, according to verse 9. Pious, speaking of he was spiritual, because he was a mighty hunter, the Bible says, before the Lord. So he's pious. And then it says it again in verse 9, that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, again repeating about him. Because Moses wants us to see the character and the quality of the man Nimrod. So when he would hunt, he would hunt before the Lord because he knew that the earth was the Lord's and everything that was in it. And all of these things were given for man to have dominion over based on the Adamic covenant. And so he's practicing the presence of God. He's aware of God in everything that he does. So when he goes to hunt, i.e. goes to work, he is aware of the Lord, that everything he does is before the Lord. Isn't that a good reminder for us that God is always watching? Not to pounce on us, but he's always observing and watching because he can't turn that off. His eyes are going to and fro throughout the earth, looking for someone who will honor his name that he might bless them. So this man was practicing the presence of God. But not only that, verse 9 says that uh, uh, he was prominent because it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. You see the quotations there? So the culture looked up to him in such a way that they came up basically with a statement or maybe even a song to say, we want to be like Nimrod, a mighty man before the Lord. So he was prominent, prominent. He was a hero. So just like when David had slain Goliath, they came back to town and the people were saying, Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his 10,000. And this was the thing that would make Saul jealous of David because of David's prominence. And this man, Nimrod, was prominent in the culture where parents said, I want my children to be like Nimrod, who was a godly man 
who was a man who protected the community, who used his power to empower others. But not only was he prominent, he was also a potentate, meaning that he was a king. We see this in verse 10. It says, and he, excuse me, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And so in order to build kingdoms, it's saying that he was a king. He was a king. So this is the kind of imagery we've got to get in our minds that this man was a potentate. He was a king who served people by protecting them. He was a servant leader. And finally, he was productive because in verses 11 and 12, it talks about how he built multiple civilizations. So he was a builder. He was powerful. He was a protector. He was pious. He was prominent. He was a potentate. And he was productive. Multiple civilizations that are still standing today can trace their roots biblically back to Nimrod. So when the world in which I live in will say that black men are not smart enough to coach an NFL team, I have to say, you don't know who we are. You don't know whose we are. If we built kingdoms, we can own a team, yet alone coach one. But things are so embedded in the minds of people in this country to think inferiority when they see men of color, women of color, on and on in this country. I know you may not like it, but it's true. We'll go more into depth on Wednesday nights on these kinds of phenomena. But when I look at Nimrod here, this is not the way I was taught about him in school. This image that I'm presenting to you is an image that everyone needs to see. Black boys need black men to look up to as their heroes. There's a picture here that was taken when the statue was unveiled on the square of a young black boy looking up to the statue. Do you guys have that? That right there. There's Callie back there too. History was made. Uh, Millie is floating around there somewhere. But history was made that day. From what we know, there are no more than 10 of these kinds of statues in the country of black men um, wearing their Union army clothes. No more than 10 of those. But there are hundreds of statues dedicated to white men who fought in the Confederacy. I can't remember the number now, but I think it's over 700 throughout the South. And there are no more than 10. And we believe Franklin, Tennessee is the only place where this kind of representation is on the square of the city. Not in a cemetery, but on the square of a city. Representation, because representation matters. I need to read the Bible and see people who look like me. And we need to go through life and see people who look like us. And not always in compromising positions or images that have been presented to create a narrative or to carry on a narrative. So when that boy is looking up and his name is Caden Gentry. He lives in Franklin. He's six years old. 
and he's looking up. It's as if he was mesmerized by that image. And as I was looking at him, looking up at March to Freedom at six years old, I was just like him. The camera just didn't catch me. I was 53 years old seeing an image like that for the first time in my life. Other people may not think much of it because you look around and you see images like yourself all of the time. It's no big deal. It's normal. But for many of us, it's not normal to see positive images of ourselves. So it's that image of Nimrod we need. Because nowhere in the Bible does it say that Nimrod built the Tower of Babel to rebel against God. It doesn't say that, family. But that's what I was taught. That Nimrod was a rebel. God said, fill the earth, and he stayed where he was, and he built the Tower of Babel. So he, that black man, was negative, rebellious. Wait a minute, hold on. We do believe, let the Bible interpret itself. So when I read the Bible in Genesis chapter 11, I read how they found a plane in the land of Shinar. Yeah, he may have built Shinar, but he didn't build the tower. It says, then they said to one another, let's make bricks. Then in verse 5, the sons of men built the tower. Uh, on and on, they began to do this. They proposed. Nowhere does it say Nimrod told them to build the tower. Because that would contradict the guy who's living before the Lord. But we can't get that image of Nimrod, but we create an image of Nimrod that says he was rebellious against God. So he's a kingdom builder. Yeah, he found Babel, which would lead to Babylon. But it does not say he built the tower of Babel, which was against God. The people did that. We don't know if he passed off the scene. We don't know, but it does not say emphatically that he built the tower of Babel and rebelled against God. I choose to look at all these positive verses of him as opposed to what people insert in the Bible about him. Because I'm tired of black men getting blamed for things we didn't do. Can I get an amen? I'm tired of black men getting blamed for stuff we didn't do. I'm tired of us getting judged harshly, wrongly. History, we'll look back and see how wrongly and how harshly Barack Obama was judged. We'll look back. And when we look at Colin Kaepernick, peaceful, nonviolent demonstrations of taking a knee to protest police brutality, not the army, not, 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 not armed forces, no, or the flag. He wasn't protesting the flag. But that narrative was created. No matter what he said, why he was kneeling, it was painted that he was disrespecting the flag and the military. No, he was kneeling against the, the core issue of racism in this country that shows up in police brutality. And because of that... He was put out of the NFL and has not been put back in. Can't get back in. And so last week during the game, they'll, they'll put up images of Martin Luther King and talking about justice. But they won't bring the guy in who did the stuff Martin Luther King did. But he's being judged harshly and unfairly in this generation. So when we read the Bible, don't think that that stuff only happened back then. It's still happening today with how people view us. I wish I had time to tell you how I've been misinterpreted. 
There's a company in Cool Springs. Now they move further up 65. I used to speak there on a regular basis. They, they deal with finances and stuff. I won't say the name. I used to come on a regular basis and, and teach the Bible. Man, they loved it. They loved me. Been going for years, and they would give me the same gift every time, the same books from the guy that I would take and go sell down the street. But, but I, I, I would go, and I would speak. One time I went, the Lord gave me the message that morning. Normally, he gives me the message days before. and That morning, he woke me up, and he said, I know you're going to preach this, but preach this. Preach about adultery. Preach about David and Bathsheba. So I went there, and I preached about David and Bathsheba. I've been given so much leeway that, that I, I felt like I was a pastor over the group because I've been coming for so long. But after I preached on that, they told me I could never come back again because that, that place was not for sermons but for uh, uh, inspirational messages. I said, y'all never told me that. An inspirational message. Well, after being treated harshly, misinterpreted, that's okay. Come to find out later that there was adultery running through the company in the higher ups. So they didn't like the message nor the messenger and said, don't come back no more. That's all right. I fulfilled my assignment. God said what he needed to say. And they're still dealing with the shrapnel of unconfessed sin in the leadership to this day. But they mistreated God's man. Not the first time. I'm just letting you know, man, I don't like when that happens. However, I'm so thankful for white people who are willing to learn the truth about black people. And I'm so thankful for white people who are not only willing to learn the truth about black people, but they're willing to teach the truth about black people. Even if when teaching the truth about black people, it doesn't put white people in the best light. Because there are some white people who will say, let's change all of the curriculum so that we don't talk about those days because we don't want to invoke guilt on white children. So we're going to call everything critical race theory, and we're going to use our governmental power, systemic racism, in order to get certain books banned in the classroom. But I thank God for white people who said, man, we're telling the truth, even if we got to lose our job. And I thank God for preachers, not a whole lot of them, who are willing to preach from the Bible. What the Bible says about race and racial issues. I'm so thankful for the few of those white brothers. Man. And can I thank God for Eric Jacobson while I'm here? He was one of the guys you saw in the picture with the fuller story. Eric Jacobson is a historian. He's not your typical historian. Because he tells the truth about slavery and segregation and reconstruction. And so when I met Eric for the first time, we're sitting in a restaurant in Franklin, and this is after, you know, Charlottesville, and we're wanting to tear down the statue in Franklin, man. We're, we're hot. And so I sit down with Eric, and he's calm. And he begins to tell me about a black man named Samson Keeble that I've never heard of. 
So he tells me about Samson Keeble, how this man was born into slavery in 1833, right down the road in Rutherford County. And during Reconstruction, he became a barber. And he moved to Nashville where he built up his business. In the course of building up his business, meeting people as a barber, in 1872, he ran for office and became the first African-American elected to the Tennessee House of Representatives. I never knew of Samson Keeble, but a white man taught this black man about black history because black history is our history and black history is American history. White man talking. And I'm going to go on record as saying this. There would be no fuller story if it weren't for Eric Jacobson. Because it was his vision to say, don't tear that down. Let's talk about what we can put up. There are so many stories going on in this town about African Americans that people don't know about. So once again, the white man educated me. He told me about the market house that was in the center of Franklin that not only sold chickens and cows and pigs, but it sold people. It sold enslaved Africans right there in the quaint, uh, wonderful town of Franklin. Yeah, they sold people on auction blocks and separated families, a truth that people did not want to get out. But it was this white man who brought it to the forefront. It was this white man who told me about the United States Colored Troop Soldiers. Because what I knew, I learned from the movie Glory with Denzel Washington. I didn't know much about him. People kept talking about black folks fighting for the Confederacy. That's all I heard in Franklin, as if to say the war wasn't fought over slavery. Look at the black guys who fought for the Confederacy. Yeah, but you didn't get them black guys no rifles. But then Ag tells me about the 200,000 black men who fought in the Army and the Navy. I didn't know. And then he says, you know that courthouse right there in Franklin? It's called the second courthouse. And the North occupied that courthouse when they defeated the area. And they put a provost office in that courthouse so that slave, enslaved people from the area could come to that courthouse who wanted to fight in the army. They could get authorized in that courthouse, go to Nashville and join the army. White man told me that. So this is our history. It's just not my history or black people's history. This is our history. And as I close, I'm taking a little longer than I want. I'll close right now. Let me say it this way. Black people, we want to learn about Africa. We want to wear dashikis and all of that. But few of us are willing to go to Africa as missionaries. We keep talking about, man, we, we got to focus on the hood and urban uh, re renovation and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I get that. But why is it that we are hesitant on going back to Africa? But when we look at how it works, typically... I'm painting with a broad brush. It's white people who go to Africa as missionaries and invest in missions. Black people stay in the neighborhood 
won't go to Africa. White folk go to Africa, but won't have a heart for black folks in the black neighborhood. Don't understand it. So rather than compartmentalizing where we go and who we go to, why don't we just do what Jesus said and go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. So black folks go to Africa. White folks go to the hood. Somebody got to say it. I don't mind saying it because there's hypocrisy on both ends. There's a missions that's motivated by prejudice, fear, and racism. I didn't get to tell you about the second son, Mizraim. I didn't get to tell you about the third son, Put, or the fourth son, Canaan. I'll send my notes out to everybody. But I want you to know that if we taught the Bible to see the gifts of Ham's four black sons, how would that change the world? Africa is God's gift to the world, which means Africans and African-Americans are gifts. We're not cursed. We're blessed. We weren't cursed with black skin. We were created and born with black skin. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. It is something to thank God for that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, let me break it down this way before Ben comes. I told you that in Hebrew, Adam means taken from the earth, taken from red clay, taken from dirt. Descended from Adam was a man called Noah. He built the ark when the earth was covered over. God started over because man was so wicked, so God fixed it. Where Noah's three sons were the ones that we descended from. All nations, all races, all kindreds, black, white, yellow, and red faces. From Shem comes people with olive skin, 12 tribes, and a lion from Judah. From Japheth came the Caucasian or the, the European, if you know what I mean. And last but not least is my man Ham. And Ham in Hebrew means black man. So blacks are in the Bible, as you can see. I said blacks are in the Bible, as you can see. I said blacks are in the Bible, as you can see, because they're God's gifts to you and to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of black people of Africa. Thank you for white brothers and sisters who stand with us through various stages of struggle. Give us hope, Lord. And remind us of the stock from which we come in order to face and win the battles that are ahead that are found in hearts and in institutions. But may it always be grounded on Jesus and the truth that Jesus speaks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.